You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. We, in last week, we had the great promise of Genesis 15 as God cut a covenant with Abram and made him this great promise of descendants. And Abram believed God. And in this chapter, we see really the great uh, fall into sin. Now, Abram, uh, sorry, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He should be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Well, patience is a hard thing. It is hard to have to wait in line, and particularly in our age, perhaps. Uh, we live in the age of Amazon Prime, of one-click delivery, and if it doesn't come the next day, we get impatient. 
hard to be patient. Well, we've seen Abram's great faith, his patience. He's been in uh, the land of Canaan 10 years. He's trusted the Lord and his promises. He's acted upon those promises. But in this passage, we see um, perhaps their impatience of Abram and Sarai as we, as Sarai attempts to take a, a shortcut, it seems, to the promised blessing of God. And we have this uh, fall. Well, the tale of strife in the house of Abram is divided into three scenes. First, we have Sarai's scheme, uh, running from verse 2 to verse 6. Then we have Hagar's escape, this scene in the wilderness by the well, there at verse 7 to 14. And finally, we have Ishmael's birth, this final scene recounted just simply for us there in verse 15. But verse 1 just reintroduces the problem, the dilemma, for the household of Abram. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. God had promised this great blessing to Abram, as echoes the, the original promise in Genesis, the promise of multiplication uh, of, of, of offspring. But his wife uh, had borne him no children. He's moved to the land, and what does he find in the land? Not fruitfulness, but barrenness. There is famine in the land. And likewise, Sarai is barren. She has no child. And then the promise has been repeated to Abram that a son would be born from his own body, so not Lot, not an adopted son, uh, not someone in his house, Eliezer of Damascus, but his own son, one from his own body. Now, we have not yet been told who the mother is going to be. This is one of the interesting things in this passage. It's, it's, they're, they're wondering, how is this promise going to work out? And really, that is the whole theme of, the section, of this section, whole gen, section of Genesis, is how is this promise going to work out? And we see them watching and wondering. But we come to Sarai's scheme. It's her scheme of surrogate motherhood, verses 2 to 6. We're told... She, uh, Sarai has this female Egyptian servant whose name is Hagar, presumably added to the household during their stay in Egypt, uh, related in chapter 12. Uh, Egypt was a land which was well-watered and fertile, and Hagar, in contrast to Sarai, is, it seems, a fertile young woman. So, will Abram live by faith in God's promise, or will he live by sight that is Genesis, that's what it's teaching us, isn't it? It's called to live by faith in the word of God, the promise of God, to trust when we cannot see the way. Well, Hagar, we are told, is Sarai's servant, her handmaid, so she is, at least at this stage, under Sarai's jurisdiction. And Sarai says to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She seems to acknowledge the Lord's hand in her situation, then she says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Literally, it, she says, it may be that I may build up children for her. And the verb for build up sounds in the original like the verb for son. So she wants uh, a son for herself and for, uh, for Abram. Now, as we read on in Genesis, Rachel, um, Jacob's wife, pursued a similar plan when she could not have children. 
Genesis 30, verse 3, Rachel said to Jacob, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf. Literally, she may give birth on my knees. So Sarai's plan is clear. She wants a son, and she wants to use Hagar as the instrument through which to carry out this desire for a son. Now, this kind of thing, surrogate motherhood, um, it's not unknown today, but it was a common custom in the ancient world. It would have been a well-known cultural practice uh, among the peoples at that time. But it was not God's pattern for uh, marriage, which uh, Moses has already spoken about in Genesis 2, as we've seen the institution of marriage between one man and one woman. So if Abram takes Hagar, he becomes at this point um, a, a polygamist. He takes a second wife. And that is always presented in Genesis as a thoroughly bad thing. Uh, the first polygamist you may remember in, in Genesis is Lamech, who takes two wives. And, um, and, um, and then whenever you read about it in Genesis, back, uh, fast forward to the, the Jacob narrative, it's a, it's a terrible thing. We see it's this perversion of God's good design. Furthermore, if Abram takes Hagar as a, a second wife, he not only becomes a polygamist, he also would take an Egyptian as a wife. Egypt, uh, the son of Ham, son of Noah, the son of Shem, sorry. So he would take uh, a foreign wife. And God's covenant people, as we read on in the story, always forbidden from taking foreigners as wives, and that wasn't a racial thing. It was because those who were uh, these foreign women um, or foreign men worshipped other gods. So there's uh, laws against that, as you read on in the Bible. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, for instance, uh, speaks of Israel. It says it should not intermarry with the people of the land, the Canaanites and so on, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So uh, in New Covenant terms, Christians are forbidden from marrying unbelievers. Now you think, well, what about Hagar? She was in Abram's house. Uh, perhaps she'd been converted. Well, we, we don't know. It's likely um, that she, uh, likely not, um, from, from what her understanding is. But anyway, he'd become at least a polygamist. But um, remember, it hasn't been explicitly stated at this point that Sarai is going to become the mother of the promised offspring. So perhaps you think, well, Sarah might think she's just helping along God's promise, God's plan, and helping God to remove an obstacle. But as we read this, I think it's clear that the, the narrator, as, as Moses writes this, he's pr clearly presenting her action and their action as a sinful and wrong. And, and the, way I, the reason I say that is there are such strong parallels between this little paragraph and uh, the narrative of the fall recounted in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see those, uh, those parallels. So just uh, look, uh, look with me at... Um, Yes, then, sorry, end of verse 2. It says, Abram listened to the voice of uh, Sarai, and he and took, and Sarai, sorry, took Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. 
And when we look back in, in Genesis 3, we see that the woman, Eve, saw that the tree, when she saw that the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, so Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And in Genesis 3.17, when the Lord confronts Abram for his sin, the Lord um, says to Abram, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So you see uh, the parallels here. Sarai desires a son. She hatches this plan. She takes Hagar, the forbidden fruit, as it were, gives Hagar to Abram. He takes her, and Abram uh, listens to the voice of Sarai, his wife. And to listen here has a sense of obeying. It's the verb shema, to hear or obey, famous in the um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, uh, called the shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So he's hearing, he's listening, he's obeying Sarai's plan here. And he takes Hagar, um, sorry, Sarai takes Hagar, gives him, gives her to Abram. So Abram is behaving like Adam, and Sarai is behaving like Eve. They are taking, like Adam and Eve, seeking to take a shortcut to the blessing of God. And Sarai is seeking to seize control of the direction of the household, usurp Abram's position as head of the household, and Abram uh, is letting her. He did not want to confront his wife, perhaps, didn't want to face, perhaps, her anger. So just to, just to be clear, it's good for husbands to listen, it's good for us to listen to our wives. Um, it's not good when we interrupt with our answer before our wife has finished saying what she has to say. Um, it's good for us to listen, just want to make that clear. Um, it's not good for us to listen to our wives when they come to us with a course of action for the household, which comes out of a heart uh, of, of unbelief. And there are times when our husbands may need to uh, confront uh, and speak to, to those things and uh, vice versa. And so sometimes husbands follow their wives into a sinful course of action out of fear uh, of challenging their wives. And then uh, when there are negative and bad consequences, then what happens is, um, as Adam did, the husband blames the wife. Um, and we see in Genesis 3, uh, here we sort of have marriage tips from the pit, really. Um, but here, is, so here is there's sin in Sarai and in Abram. And Hagar is just being passed between the two, really. Here she is, uh, this woman with, with little status and power in the family. So Abram, verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. But then we have these unintended consequences spinning out of them, although some of them you would think would have been quite predictable. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, verse 4, she looked with contempt on her mistress and despised her mistress. She had been in a low position of the household. Now, as the, a lower-class wife, she's no longer under Sarai's jurisdiction. Um, and instead of honouring her former mistress, she's now using her newfound status uh, to antagonise her. Verse 5, Sarai says to Abram, so Hagar is now under Abram's jurisdiction, as it were, and uh, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant your embrace, speaks there of just the intimacy of the marriage bed. Uh, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you 
and me. So Sarai's scheme did not bring about the blessing that she imagined. And that is the trouble with our sin, isn't it? It, it? We desire things and we take things, but it does not ultimately bring about the blessing we desire, uh, quite the reverse. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Abram washes his hands of Hagar. She's been passed over to Abram. Um, she's now pregnant, and he passes her back. And Sarai deals harshly with her, and, she fle- and Hagar fled from her. And the word there translated harshly is important uh, as we move on. It's mentioned a number of times, and it's the word used, um, it's the word used in Exodus for the afflictions of God's people there in Egypt. So that comes to the end of the first scene, Sarai's scheme. And I think there's just, just a warning for us, isn't there, not to give way to sin, but to continue to trust the Lord and to seek him, not to follow our own heart's desires when we know that what we are doing is wrong. It will end badly. And I think it's a reminder that we need to pray for ourselves and for each other. Uh, and as a church, uh, daily really, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But then we have this second scene, Hagar's escape, and we see uh, the Lord's uh, intervention. The Lord meets with Hagar. And this is remarkable, I think, really. Hagar is is a woman within this household of very little uh, status, little power, as it were, although she's got this newfound power. But nevertheless, the Lord's eye is upon her. We're told, verse 7, the angel of the Lord finds her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So the setting is significant. They're on the way down to Shur, which is the road down to Egypt. Hagar is going back uh, to um, her own country. And there's a spring of water, a place uh, of rest in the midst of her affliction. And this is some way uh, south. This is right near the borders of Egypt. So she has travelled quite a long distance here. And we're told that the angel of the Lord found her. The Lord himself pursues this runaway slave. Um, and it, it's, it's the, the Lord himself, we find, has been with her. And he said, verse 8, Hagar's servant of Sarai, that's how he addresses her, where have you come from and where are you going? Another echo, really, of Genesis 3, when the Lord meets Adam and asks, Adam, where are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? It's a chance for her to, to confess, as it were. She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She does not hide the truth. She's reacted sinfully to a, a, a situation where she has been cruelly sinned against. And the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the verb here, submit, is the same word which is, connected, which is um, to do with affliction. She's returned to the house of Abram and returned to her mistress, returned to this hard place and submit there um, in the house of Abram. It will ultimately be in the house of Abram that she would find uh, blessing. But then the Lord adds a promise, verse 9. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered 
for for multitude. This blessing is conditional upon her returning to Abram's house. And the angel of the Lord says to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name um, Ishmael. And you sort of, actually, as you read that out loud, didn't you want to say, and shall call his name Emmanuel? It it sounds like um, the other um, annunciations in uh, the scriptures or birth announcements, but this time for Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, just as the Lord would hear the affliction of his people in in Egypt. Verse 12, he shall be a a wild donkey of a man. His hand um, shall be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Dwell over and against his kinsmen. Ishmael, a wild man on the edge of civilization and an ongoing antagonism between him and his kinsmen. And Ishmael connected with the... um, with with the Arab tribes as we look through history. And so the Lord sees Hagar in her deep affliction. She's been cruelly treated and uh, she's fled and yet the Lord stoops to come and listen and to take care of her. And she's, she's bowled over. She said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. And so here is this a picture of just the Lord's care and blessing on Hagar as she goes back to that very difficult place that she's been called to go back to. So we have Sarai's scheme, Hagar's escape, and then finally just simply Ishmael's birth. Verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael a to Abram. And do you notice that Hagar's name is mentioned three times? Uh, no mention of Sarai. She is completely dropped from the picture. So she uh, had this great plan of, to get a son by Hagar, but Sarai is removed and, and, and Hagar there takes center stage. She has been brought into the story. Um, I mean, she was just being, sort of being passed around as this low status wife. Actually, the Lord elevates her and treats her with kindness, and she's written in to the story um, here. So Ishmael is named by Abram, but with the name that the Lord gave to Hagar, and so he is the son of Abram by Hagar, we are told, not the son of Sarai. And so Abram delighted to have a son, and as we read on, we find that Abram still hopes that Ishmael will be the son of promise, the son through whom the promise will come. But, uh, um, and he says to the Lord, oh, that Ishmael may live under your blessing. God says no. So they still, as as the story goes on, uh, they they still, this question of where is this promised offspring going to come from? Well, what are we we to make of all this um, as we draw these things together and reflect upon them? Well, there's a number of lessons to, to, to draw from this, I think. Well, one of the things which I'm always struck by in this sort of passage is, is just um, persuades me afresh of the divine authorship of Scripture. The fact that these patriarchal stories, um, if you are founding a religion, uh, you would not include these stories, these terrible flaws and sins of the founder. You see, Abram is not, he's presenting, he is this great hero of faith, uh, 
but we see he is this flawed character with a flawed wife. We see uh, their, their flaws and their sins. They are shown to us. Um, and it's just a reminder, though, that salvation is by God's grace. It's not by uh, Abram's uh, uh, ideas. It's not by Sarai's scheming. It's, it's the Lord working out his own promise to bless. It wasn't by their own efforts to bring about blessing. The Lord himself establishes his plan. It's just a wonderful encouragement that the Lord makes his promises and he will keep his promises. Even in the face of human confusion, human sinfulness, all these storylines spinning out of control, the Lord is the one who keeps his promises. We see that. Um, and we see also here, one of the remarkable things in the center of this story is the Lord's care for Hagar. It speaks of the Lord's care for those who are in a low condition, a low position in society. He doesn't just care for Abram and Sarai. He cares for each person within that household. And that is, is remarkable in, in the ancient world and remarkable today. And he's caring for Hagar, even as she's there running away. But here we, we just see that, that salvation is by grace. It's not by human manipulation or planning that the promise of God works out. That, uh, in fact, human manipulation and, and planning seems to actually just create more obstacles. So Sarah, I thought she was removing an obstacle. She was actually, as we read on, we find that she was creating this additional obstacle and bringing trouble on her own household. And so we see God himself will bring about his promises. And where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us as those who have to learn uh, patience and endurance and learn to wait. This is the, one of these functions of these passages, is to teach us to trust the Lord. We see that uh, Abram and Sarai fell into temptation, into sin, because they did not wait for the Lord. We see the bad consequences of their uh, impatience. And so frequently we fall into sin when we, uh, giving, we give up waiting for God, when we are impatient and fall into unbelief. We try to take shortcuts to the blessing of God. Whether that's uh, sort of a, a Christian young man who escapes into a fantasy world of pornography and online gaming, seeking the blessing of sex without the hard and dominion in these, in these sort of virtual forms uh, without trusting God's uh, provision and help. Um, so sort of impatience there. Or, or the Christian woman who gives, sort of gives up on, on the Lord's provision and ends up marrying uh, an unbeliever, seeking the blessing of companionship and marriage uh, by, by violating God's commands. Or just the many ways that we fall into sins of anxiety and despair because we uh, fail to believe that the Lord will come through for us and act for us. Uh, we fall into impatience and we doubt God's promise. And yet we are called to patient endurance through hard situations. And don't we see that when we consider just the affliction that Abram and Sarai had to go through and how long they had already waited and how much longer they then have to wait. So we see um, 
we are called to patient endurance. We also see in these chapters of Genesis, don't we see God's patience um, and his slowness even? The covenant God, he's made these promises, but he is not in a hurry. He does not appear to be in a rush. He works out his plans, uh, but it takes time. It would take another 13 years before the birth of Isaac. And so Abram has to learn patience. And at length, the Lord would remove every obstacle. At at length, the Lord would show himself to be the creator God, the one who can overcome every difficulty, every obstacle. And that really is the story of the Bible. It's the story of the Lord dealing with every obstacle obstacle as he prepares the way to send the Messiah. Isaiah 40 promises the coming of the Messiah uh, with the words that every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground should become level, the rugged places a plain. The Lord clearing the way uh, for the coming of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. The Lord at work bringing about his purposes, bringing about his plans, removing every obstacle. And at length, in the fullness of time, the Lord sent his son, Christ Jesus, the promised offspring, finally came into the world in fulfillment of all of God's promises. And Christ himself endured with great patience. He waited. He did not take the shortcut to the blessings of God. He did not fall into temptation. He was not like Adam. He was not like Abram, but he was the faithful servant of the Lord who trusted in the Lord. Christ was the humble servant. He waited and endured patiently. He, as Paul says in the book of Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we wait for that day and we long for that day, and yet we have to wait for it with patience. And so the scriptures, they teach us, as God works in us by his Holy Spirit, they teach us to endure. They teach us this uh, patient endurance that is so hard for us to learn. We want it by next week or next year. Uh, But the Lord's, his ways are not our ways, and his time scale is not our time scale. Um, So when when I first picked, when I first got married, pitched up to, to Liverpool. My plan was to um, plant a church in Liverpool. That would be, be a great idea. I pressed all, knocked on all sorts of doors, and it was 10 years, really, before the Lord opened up that door. I had to wait with patience and sometimes had to thrash about in patience, for patience is a hard thing. Uh, we're called to trust, and so as we consider our the Lord's work in our own lives and in our own families and extended families in different situations. Uh, There are situations and and we cry out to God. We can can call out to God, 
hurry up, Lord, make haste to help us, make speed to save us. But there are situations where we need to endure and wait for God's timing. And he sometimes works in decades rather than in weeks and brings about his purposes in our own hearts in the fullness of his time, in the fullness of his time. And so that is his his wonderful way. And he's patient towards us in our sin. That's the wonderful thing is he waits for us to repent and and turn to him. And uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul speaks of uh, the Lord's patience towards him, even as he spent those years kicking against the Lord. And so the Lord teaches us patience, and he is, um, as Peter says in 2 Peter, he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so as we consider the Lord's work in our own hearts, in our own lives, or in, in the world at large, we consider that actually the Lord is working out his plans and purposes. But uh, that's often through times of great difficulty, times where there's deep affliction, and times where he uh, is working his patience in us. Um, And so let us come now as we close and, and pray to our God and Father. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more. Thank you.